lots of um, lots of exciting things <clears throat> happening. I think, I mean, just the fact that we, even as a small church, get to send off uh, our first cross-cultural missionaries in itself. That, I'm just very excited for you guys. More excited than sad, though. Yes, I'm sad, but more excited than sad. Hmm. Now, um, we yeah, we're just going to be sticking in this one verse for today, and we will actually be reflecting a bit on it tonight as well at the carol service. Uh, and I think what this verse brings up when I was reading about it is it's kind of like when you are initially attracted to someone, whether they're a friend or a partner or someone like that, uh, the, the initial attraction is almost always like a likeness, like someone's like me, like they get me, they're the same kind of weird that I am, or they're in the same kind of stuff that I am, uh, or there's like a level of understanding. Uh, I think C.S. Lewis defined friendship as something like uh, when you see, when you interact with that someone, they're like, ah, oh, yeah. You know, that feeling, there's like, there's a relaxing feeling to that. And that's good. But I, and that might be an initial thing, but I think what happens eventually, the things that make relationships sticky over time and um, that, that make them uh, deep and substantial is not the similarity, but the difference. Especially if you're thinking of a, of a partner or a really good close friend, they're like you, but also they're unlike you in a lot of ways. And it's that unlike you aspect that can maybe sometimes be frustrating, but is also what attracts you because you don't have that in you and you like that and you want to be around that. There's something about who that person is and what they have that's different than you. And that's kind of attractive. And in the wilds of our hearts, when we see someone who gets us, there's something really nice about that. And then... We also want that person to go through the wilds of our world together, that kind of person. And that is really what we get when we experience that. That's a small reflection of who Jesus is. It's a really small reflection of who Jesus is because Jesus is like us in some ways and unlike us in some ways. And we need both, really. And when we stop to look at it, there's a beauty there, especially in that difference that attracts us to him. And in the wilds of our hearts, we can find ourselves kind of walking alone, doing our own things. Maybe sometimes things work out, maybe sometimes they don't. But then we think of the wilds of our world, and we know it's far from perfect. And what we need is someone who is like us, who gets us, yeah, but also someone who's more than us. Because just another one of the best of us can't really do very much. Who can rise above the brokenness in here and like the brokenness out there in the world? We need someone who can change our hearts and the world for the better. And that is the glimpse that we get in this verse. In this single verse, we're given a view into who Jesus is and how him living with us now, and uh, we're gonna learn about why that's actually really good for us. The very first thing we're gonna look at here is how Jesus is like us. And this is what, I mean, it's all in this one verse, kind of compact. John, who's the author here, he wants to tell us that Jesus is like us, that he's radically like us. And what actually we're going to be talking about is this doctrine of, uh, of incarnation. Oops, wrong one. Just about lost everything. Uh, it, it's the, the theological term is called incarnation. Uh, if you've ever heard that word, we might even sing like, hail the incarnate deity. You're like, wow, that sounds like a really big kind of magisterial thing. What does that mean? That just means, how did Jesus come to earth? And, and John 14 tells us nearly all that we need to know about it. Uh, if you've ever heard that word before, that's really what the sermon is about. So it's not going to be a theological nerd kind of fest, um, but it's going to talk about why that's such a good thing. First, that Jesus is like us. He's like us. And John uses the most blunt of words. He says, uh, the word became flesh. So remember the word, we've talked about this the past couple of weeks. The word is Jesus. Is one way that John is describing Jesus. So Jesus, who is God, became flesh 
and made his dwelling among us. And that's a really blunt way that John is writing here. He could wrote that in lots of different ways, but he's using this word flesh to get to this idea that in every way that we're human, Jesus became that. He's not kind of saying he was like quasi-human or he kind of like, you know, a little bit human, 50% or 40% or something. No, in every way that we are, he is. He got tired. He was hungry. He experienced emotions. He used the toilet. Ooh, I can't talk about that. That's weird. He threw parties. He threw some really good parties. He liked hanging out with friends. He was dirty at times. Most likely he stank at times, just like you and me, especially after a run. I stink really bad. Uh, he knows what it's like to be tempted. And, and you know what that's like, right? You know that, what's that like to have a wrestling in, inside of yourself. Now, you might think, oh, because Jesus is God. He kind of knows, but he doesn't. Actually, Jesus knows what that's like way more than anyone else in this room. Because eventually, we give in. You know, we have that thing of, like, I shouldn't do that thing, I shouldn't do that thing, I shouldn't do that thing, and I just did that thing. Because eventually, we give in. Eventually, we do. We always give in. Jesus never gave in. So think of all those temptations, like stacked on stacked and stacked and stacked over and over. It must have been screaming to him at points, and he never gave in. So in fact, Jesus was tempted in ways that we never will be, and, and tempted in all the ways that we have. He knows what it's like to wrestle within yourself. And unlike the paintings of Jesus you might see in galleries where he's like walking around with like a halo around his head, and he's kind of slightly living like a meek and mild kind of Jesus, uh, that's not what he was like. Or, or he was also not on the other side with like ripped Jesus, like muscles bulging and like, you know, go. he was probably skinny because he was poor, he didn't have a lot to eat, and he was a very ordinary looking person. He became like us. And more than just becoming like us, he says that uh, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. He moved into our world. It's one thing to become like us, it's another thing to move into our world with us. The idea of, of making a dwelling here originally referred to putting up a tent. Uh, and, uh, but by the time that John is writing here, the time that he's, he's using this word, uh, it has this idea of permanence, like he moved in. And Revelation, that word dwelling, um, refers to people who live in the new heavens and earth. Like that's going to be our dwelling. That's permanent. That's the same kind of permanence of Jesus being in our world here. Uh, the, I love the message translation that says, uh, Jesus took on flesh and moved into the neighborhood. Imagine Jesus as a generic mank walking around, generic churl tonight walking around. Would he be vegan? I don't know. Maybe he would be. He moves into a flat in Churlton. He's not renting. He's bought. He's here for the long haul. Now, it's one thing to be made like us, and it's another thing altogether to make his dwelling with us. I think sometimes our imaginations fail, maybe because we think, oh, it's so long ago. But just imagine, he is with us. And if he's living in Churlton, we know housing is going to be a whole issue for him. But he speaks in ways that we understand. He lives as we live. Jesus is all in on the human experience. He's completely in because it's part of him. And you know, this is uh, foundational to those who follow Jesus. Uh, we're called to actually follow Jesus in the way that he came. This is what that incarnation kind of theology is about. Uh, this is how we go about being missionaries. Everyone is a missionary. Whether you leave a country, go to another country, or whether you stay kind of in your existing country, we take on the flesh of those who are around us and make our dwelling with those who are around us. It's an easy temptation to only get slightly involved with other people, but that's not how Jesus lived. That's not how we're supposed to live. It's an easy temptation to not really give yourself to others, but of course, that's not how Jesus lived either. 
May we as followers of Jesus be all in the way that Jesus was all in. With each other, yes, but also with those who aren't in this room yet, who we would love to see here. May their problems become our problems because we're so involved in their lives. Now, there's something also uh, very interesting going on in this little section here. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. What John is doing, especially for his readers who are Jewish, that would know their Old Testament really well, uh, he's pointing this idea of a tabernacle. In fact, this verse could read, and I, there might even be a translations that put it this way, that the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Uh, and this goes back to when the Israelites were freed from their slavery in Egypt. So this is like you know, this side of the Bible, not on this side of the Bible. We're on the, the left side of the Bible here in the Old Testament. As uh, They're freed from their slavery in Egypt, and on their way home, uh, to this place that God had called them to go. They're not there yet. They haven't even visited yet, but God said, this is where you're going to go. So they were freed from a place that was their home, although they were enslaved, on their way to their new home where they were going to experience this kind of new level of freedom. But they weren't there yet. They were in the middle. They're in this kind of in-between wilderness space, literally going around in circles. And it might be easy to see how this connects with our spiritual lives, right? We've been bought already, especially if you're a follower of Jesus. You've been, uh, you aren't a slave anymore, but yet we're not in that new heavens and earth, so we're in this kind of in-between wilderness space. And in the wilderness, God, had, God filled his, let his glory fill what was called a tabernacle. There's a picture of this thing here. They would take it up whenever they moved and put it back down whenever they stopped. Exodus 40, 34, it's one of the many places. It says, the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Where it went, they went. Where it was, God's presence was, and therefore God's blessings. That's how God works. Where he is, he blesses. And all of that, as big and as cosmic as that was, for someone in the Old Testament kind of walking around in circles there in the desert, as, as amazing as it is, all that was just a mere shadow of what John is telling us about, the true and better tabernacle, Jesus. Because in our wilderness, he's there. He leads us. We follow. His glory is there. He leads us out of slavery and into his presence. And in his presence, there's freedom in his presence, we get to be blessed by him. There's grace. There is truth. And there's a word for this kind of glory that fills a tabernacle. It's this word called Shekinah. And I feel like I can't say, unless I have like a good southern accent, Shekinah glory. Like you gotta like put a guttural kind of into it. I won't do it too much, I promise. That just feels weird. The glory, it's this glory that comes from God's presence. And sometimes that word, it's so, it's so associated with God, sometimes that word Shekinah is even kind of used in place for the name of God himself. That's how closely it is connected to him. The place of God's dwelling, that Shekinah glory is the flesh of Jesus. That's what John is telling us here in these few little words. Filled with Shekinah glory, all in the flesh of Jesus of Nazareth. That is amazing. That's a lot of stuff going on in those first little words. He, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. It's kind of scandalous. He came to us. The reason I think why we probably would all laugh of like Jesus has an ordinary mank, like kind of, no way, like that's far below God. Like, that's not, that's not exactly what God came to do. So he's like us. And no, no, all this glory talk, it gets, to, it gets us to the next point. It gets us to this other aspect of how Jesus is not like us. Because as much as he is radically like us, he is also radically unlike us. And this glory talk is kind of what gets us there. And before we maybe even talk about glory, we hear the word and we say it, we sing it, we pray for the glory. Like, what is glory? Like, what is that? What's the deal? What is the deal there? God's glory is his 
his, which means perfect in all possible ways, his splendor, his beauty, his, uh, his blessing that kind of radiates outward wherever he is, his greatness. A way to think about it is like a bright lamp. If I had a bright lamp up here as, a, as an object lesson and I clicked it on, all of a sudden the, the light would fill the room and the light would go everywhere. It's not like the light only hits on a few things, like it, it's an open bulb would go everywhere. Now the glory is the light. The glory, is, so the light isn't the lamp itself, right? Those two things are different. But why would you have a lamp without the light? Like the whole reason for the lamp is the light. The God can't exist without that kind of glory. It's just who he is. It's always going to come. He is always radiating outward his greatness, his beauty, his glory. And unlike us, his glory is always great. Our glory is maybe sometimes good-ish, sometimes not. And all this might sound a little bit theoretical, talking about glory and like lamps and what the deal, what's the deal here. But John brings it into our world because he says, we have seen it. We have seen his glory. And this isn't kind of like a spiritual seeing or some kind of like, like a vision dream kind of seeing. He's talking about with our physical eyeballs, we saw this glory. Like these eyes that I'm, that I'm writing with right here, I saw the glory in Jesus of Nazareth, this person who existed in real life. And this is the glory of the one and only son. That means there's nothing quite like Jesus. It's unique in every possible way. Who he is and his glory, that's unlike us because we're not the one and only sons. He's unique. He gets to be that. Nothing else exists that is like Jesus. Also, there's nothing quite like the relationship between Jesus and the Father. That's a really unique thing as well. It's actually a big theme in John's gospel. If you... Um, did a search on every time the word sent comes out. You'd see often the way that Jesus describes himself is the sent one or the one who the father sent. And often the way Jesus describes the father is the one who sent me. So this like, and that's, that's a relational kind of, uh, kind of dis- description there. Jesus, the son of God, has always existed in this kind of perfect relationship with God the father. Now these two areas, Jesus' glory and his uniqueness, make him radically unlike us. And that's what John's getting at here. And uh, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son. So there's something, uh, there's about his glory and about his uniqueness. And when you think about it, probably every marketing campaign plays on those two things. Something glorious and something completely unique. I mean, it's Christmas time. We've all seen the adverts. We know everyone's trying to get us to buy money, to, to buy things. Like this thing, oh, isn't it wonderful? That's glory speak, saying something's wonderful. That's glory speak. Isn't this thing wonderful? It's like the best thing in the world. What is it? A toothbrush. And this toothbrush gonna solve every single one of your problems. You have a problem with getting promoted at work? Use this toothbrush. Does the opposite sex not find you attractive? Use this toothbrush. Do you want a car? Use this toothbrush. You wanna be the envy of the neighbors on your street? Use this toothbrush. It's gonna be amazing, it's glory. Isn't it wonderful? We've all heard that, right? And we think it's hilarious. I mean, like the best kind of adverts that are especially like America in the 80s, like beer adverts in the 80s in America is like you pop open the can and all of a sudden women come out of every place. It's like, where did all these women in swimsuits come from? Oh my goodness. Just because you opened up the bud or whatever the thing might be. See, they know what they're doing. They spend loads on advertising, not wasting their money. They know what they're doing. We all want glory. We all want it. It's attractive. And then there's also the unique thing because all other shampoos are not like this shampoo right here. And you are not like everybody else. You're unique. You deserve something. You don't deserve the normal kind of shampoos everyone else uses. Let them buy that 
you will have this unique one that everyone else will buy as well because it's mass marketed. The unique stuff, there's nothing quite like it. See, we love the glorious. We love the unique. And that's a good thing. We're made for it. Like, we're attracted to that for a reason. And we can't help but make stories about it, whether it's a Christmas film or a John Lewis advert, whatever the thing might be. It's a part of who we are. And again, it's a bit like what tracks you to a partner or to a really good friend. At first, it's the areas of similarity, but then it's the areas of difference that really kind of stick. And that difference can be frustrating, but it's what attracts us to the other person. Now, there are many things out there claiming to be glorious and unique, not least the thoughts we have about ourselves, like we're glorious, we're unique in all possible ways. The problem, though, I think, here is that we settle for far less. We really end up settling in life. We settle for so much less than what we're made for. It's not that our desires are too strong. Like, it's not that Christianity is like clamping down on desires to like, oh, if you didn't like want so much in life, then Christianity could be a really good option for you. No, it's saying, actually, your desires are so, so without Christianity, without Jesus, your desires are so small, you're going to settle for so much less. What Jesus does is he gives, he broadens your desire and he broadens those appetites. He gives you something that you can't find anywhere else. What satisfies that cosmic hunger of ours, of glory? A house? A car? Are you kidding me? Surely. Surely we're made for something more than that. How small our desires, how easy is it to deceive ourselves thinking we're actually living for something big, when really, it's really nothing at all. And really, it's easy to not really think about this at all, just kind of go on about life. And that's how to keep desires small. That's how to live a small life. And living in that way is going to mean we're going to miss out on that glorious uniqueness that only Jesus has. So we've looked at how Jesus is like us uh, and how he's unlike us, and we'll get to how those two meet and why that's amazing for us in a moment. But before we do, I don't want to miss um, a really massive part here, is he's like us, yes, he's unlike us, but also he's for us just as much. Uh, the end of verse 14 um, says that uh, we've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, and there's an ending section here, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. He's for us. He came from the Father. Why did Jesus come from the Father? For us. There's no other reason. We're the ones who made the problem, and he's the one who's here to fix it, and he's coming for us. You know when it's, um, when it's cold in, your mor- in the morning, and you have that nice little cocoon in your bed, and the alarm goes off, or you know you have to get up for work, and you're just like, this is the worst feeling ever, having to leave this situation here? It's like a womb. You know, it's kind of like, oh, this is like, this must have been what it was like before I was born. This is amazing. No wonder I cried when I was coming out, you know? It's not fun to, <laughs> I wasn't going to talk about wombs. Um, and it's Christmas even. If there's any time, you can get away with it. This is time to do it. Now, imagine that feeling, uh, not the womb feeling maybe because you probably can't remember, but getting out of bed in the morning. Like, imagine that times 1,000%, 1 million percent. That is the difference of Jesus leaving that perfect love of the Trinity coming from the Father to us. Why would he do that? He's not doing it to kind of merely make a point. He's not doing it begrudgingly. That's the perfect situation that he had in perfect love, and he left that, and he came to earth for us. Now, never doubt that Jesus is for you. Never doubt that. I wonder sometimes if maybe we as humans should actually doubt more. You know, often maybe you hear the church saying, oh, we shouldn't doubt. Sometimes churches might say that. 
But I think um, generally we don't give equal doubting to everything in our lives. Like how often do we doubt our doubts? We probably don't. Our doubts somehow miss that area of the microscope. But never doubt that Jesus is for you. If you're ever wondering, does Jesus really care about me? Is he really thinking about me? Does he, I mean, is he really kind of for me, whatever that might mean in your life? Like, yes, he, he is. And he, he couldn't care more in, for, about you. In fact, he cares more about you than you do in your own life. Doubt those doubts that we might have and live in the wonder that Jesus is and always will be for you, regardless of where you are in life. He is always for you. And how did he come? Well, he came, John says, full of grace and truth. Full, full up with it. He's filled with it. It couldn't have been more filled with grace and truth than what Jesus had. In fact, he was so full of grace and truth, there's no room for anything else. There's no room for, uh, for being judgmental. There's no room for mix of motives because he's full of grace. He's full of truth. There's no room for uh, being false. He didn't come with white lies. He didn't come with big ones. He came full of grace and truth. Now, grace is what causes joy. It's, the, it's where gladness comes from. It's favor given to someone who doesn't deserve it. You're getting a gift, any gift, you know, if you're getting it, you don't deserve it. It's the definition of a gift. That's what grace is. A commentator on this verse said, nowhere do we see more clearly what the grace of God means than in the word made flesh. This is grace, full of grace. And truth, John later in chapter 14 will write one of Jesus's lines where Jesus says, I am the truth. So he's full of truth, also he is the truth. That means our idea of truth which is you know, as opposed to falseness, but this truth also means a faithfulness, a reliability, a trustworthiness, a sureness. This is who Jesus is. This is what he's full of. And God's reality, and since God created everything, he's the only reality, this reality is fully revealed in this person of Jesus, transmitted to us in the words here in the Bible. Any way of life that does not accord with God's reality is just some kind of fantasy world. In all the ways that you're not living in God's reality, you've given into some kind of fantasy world. If you believe in some part of God doesn't really care about me, that's a fantasy world. That's not reality. That's like some kind of fantasy world you're making up. How much of our lives are run by fake news? I'm talking about like the media stuff. I'm talking about the idea that I can handle my life. That's a fantasy. I'm talking about the idea that of this like individualized faith, like it's just kind of up to me and Jesus and the Bible. That's a fantasy. I'm talking about thinking we can say we follow Jesus, but then choose how we want to live. Like, that's a fantasy too. It's God's reality. He's created this world. He gets to choose how it goes. God's reality is the only reality, and it's revealed in Jesus of Nazareth, given to us in the Bible. Now, that by itself could sound quite heavy, and it is. But it's the fact that grace and truth get embodied in a person that is actually really good news for us. The fulfillment of of grace and truth are found in Jesus. That makes grace and truth not just kind of ideas out there, but it makes it personal, makes it like related to humans. So grace isn't a a thing by itself. Like we talk about grace, but grace never exists by itself. It, it, It exists through Jesus. It's the same with truth. Just like God's glory being seen in Jesus of Nazareth, grace and truth is seen in Jesus. So grace isn't just a thing in itself. It's connected to a person. Now, impersonal grace is like a nice story. It's like a fanciful idea. It's like a really bad Hallmark cheesy Christmas film. You guys, I mean, I love a good cheesy Christmas film, and I cannot wait to watch one 
I don't know if I'll be able to do it tonight, but I'm hoping maybe tomorrow night I will be able to. Like, there's loads of my Netflix, loads of my Amazon Prime. They're horrible, and they're so good, they're so bad. I love them. I love to make fun of them. But you don't want to live your life by that. It's too weak. There's no, there's no teeth there. It's just like a good idea. And truth isn't just a thing in itself. It's connected to a person. Impersonal truth is raw data that crushes us, destroys us. So impersonal grace is too weak, and impersonal truth is too strong. Either way, those aren't really good for us. Let me explain. This might be a little bit theoretical. Let's get to that idea of impersonal grace. Impersonal grace, this fanciful idea, this like hallmark, cheesy kind of film thing. Now, we like these kinds of stories when dealing with difficult things. Like, say, death, for example. Death is really difficult for us to handle. We don't really talk about it very often. We don't really know how to process it. So we'll often come up with these kind of fanciful ideas of of what happens to someone after they die. Uh, We might say something like they're still with us in a way that's beyond, like, we we are thinking about them. But, you know, we, we have these kind of ideas that where does it come from? We don't know. There's like a fanciful idea that we want to be true. And we don't think there's a spiritual world until we can't bear the thought of a spiritual world not existing. But there's really no root in reality with impersonal grace. It's just a fanciful story. That's also, it gets applied to forgiveness as well. Because real forgiveness requires a personal grace. Otherwise, that kind of false forgiveness that's impersonal is just, again, a fanciful story we tell ourselves. But yeah, I've forgiven that person when you really you haven't. We say I've forgiven you, but we hold ourselves back and we try and get at them in like passive aggressive kind of ways. Or maybe we don't even tell the other person anything. Like, no, everything's fine. It's fine. No, it's fine. I mean, if you're married and your partner says it's fine, generally it's not. That's a fanciful idea that always leads to conflict. <laughs> and that is impersonal grace in action. Those are just stories we make up to kind of unruff the rough areas of life. I want to live by something better than that. That's just, that sounds kind of lame. I don't want to give my life to that. That's weak. And it doesn't hold water when we really need it to hold water. So that's the, that idea of impersonal grace. Let's, so it's too weak. Let's talk about impersonal truth. And this is something that's too strong where it crushes us. Truth is more inconven- than inconvenient. By itself, truth is unbearable. When think of justice, just for a moment, who's going to make wrong things right in this world? People who wrong others, who get away with it, who take advantage of people who are supposed to care for, the best chance we have for us to make things right is us? That's, how naive is that? We have how many years, millennia of history, proving we have not gotten it right. We think, oh, but, you know, I can make it right. That's naive. Is that the best we got? It's not very hopeful. The need for justice in this world is far, far too strong than what we can handle ourselves. We can't bear it. Another example is the environment. What hope do we have to reverse climate change, let alone stave it off ourselves? Here's the truth. You can't do very much. Now, we should, do all, we should keep doing the things we can do, but in reality, what you do, your blue bin, that's a drop in the bucket because the real problem comes from massive corporations. The real problems come from massive governments. You can't change any of that. So the truth of climate change by itself, impersonal, impersonal and just out there existing, that's a crushing weight that we can't bear. We're not going to be able to bear that. It's too much. Removing the personal nature of grace and truth leaves us with fanciful stories and that burden of hopelessness. And if that's all we got, we got to do something better than this on Sunday mornings. But what Jesus does as him full of grace and truth comes into our world is he makes those things personal. He makes those things personal. They come from him. 
So grace and truth is now not some kind of concept out there for us to find, but it's found in a person who has come to find us. And we know, because it's he, him, the person who's at work, we know he is in the process of making this world new. We don't always know exactly how that's going to work, but we can trust in the person who is actually doing that work, and we get to join him as we do it. The grace that Jesus is full of has a power to make that too-good-to-be-true story true. The truth that Jesus is full of has a strength that he bears, that we get to join in on. That means we can have hope in unbearable situations because he's full of grace and truth. We don't have to be full of grace and truth all the time. He's the one who has it. We get to join him as he does it. We can forgive in difficult areas of our life, for example, because he's full of grace and truth. We can carry on living in good ways when others might find it helpless because he's full of grace and truth. Now, normally, those two things are opposed to each other. Grace is a gift given to someone who doesn't deserve it. Truth is like kind of like that crushing weight of people getting, basically getting what you deserve. The truth that I'm broken, that I chase after other things and see them as glorious and not God, there's a consequence to that. That's death. But then grace is getting something that we don't deserve. And getting anything other than death is a gift that I don't deserve. How in the world do those two things live side by side? How can God do this? Is he just some kind of like multiple personality disorder kind of situation here? And what about uh, someone being like us and someone being unlike us at the same time? How is that possible? How in the world is that, is that a thing? Or is that just something that we say we have to believe in because there are contradictions in the Bible? The answer to all these things comes together at the cross. They all meet there at the cross. We, as humans, need someone like us, and we need someone who's not like us in every way to take the punishment that we deserve. Because the right consequences of our constant suppression of God in our lives and in other lives, God has told us is death, and he's made the rules. But we need something more than that, because if one human dies for another human, nothing really happens. Maybe some things might happen, but like, not really on like a world scale, not on like a cosmic scale. One human can't take the death of another human. Like that just never happened. But a God can do that. God can do that. We need Jesus to not just be like us, but unlike us, because only God's death will be able to cover the deaths of others. I mean, does that make sense? How do both of things have to work together? When Jesus died on the cross, it was his death, yes. And what also happened was he took all of our deaths with him. The punishment being completely absorbed by Jesus on the cross, like a sponge, like a good quality sponge, like soaking up all the water. It takes it all up. He took up all the wrath of God against us. Only a person who's like us and unlike us could do that. We really need someone who's like that. There's no other, other way for this to happen. And the cross is also where grace and truth meet. A mentor of mine, um, when I was at seminary, used to use this word tryst for grace and truth. The tryst is like this... Uh, clandestine like rendezvous with a romantic partner that you're not supposed to be with, like grace and truth, they're not supposed to be together. But at the cross, we find them together and they, they kiss at the cross. Two people who shouldn't be together, but are. Jesus, he's full of grace and truth. On the cross is where the truth of us as sinners and the grace of God's love meet. It's where, it, where they kiss. The truth of God's justice meets the grace of God's love. And this is why Jesus came from the Father, because he was sent to die. He, did, he was sent to live and to resurrect and to, to reign, yes. But part of that was he was sent to die. And not just to die, to live a new life. And not just that, 
to rule in this new life, giving his new life to other people through the Holy Spirit. So in the wilds of our heart, when we are stubborn, when we're off wandering, when we're off doing our own thing, Jesus brings his grace and his truth. And in the wilds of our world, that can seem hopelessly broken at times. If you've ever gotten a glimpse, you feel that. Jesus is bringing his grace and truth, even now. Jesus, living among us, he's like us, he's unlike us, and he's for us. And this is what we celebrate during Advent, during Christmas time, and this is what we celebrate through communion. Uh, and what communion is meant for are for people who follow this, this Jesus who's full of grace and truth. Not the Jesus of our ideas or Jesus of our thoughts, but the Jesus of Nazareth, the one that actually existed. The bread, uh, which symbolizes Jesus' body, who came from the Father, like us, put to death on the cross. And the cup represents Jesus' blood, came from the Father, went to the cross, like us and unlike us, poured out his blood. And as we remember again what Jesus did, may you doubt your doubts about who Jesus is, about what he thinks about you, and why he came into your world. May you doubt those doubts. Jesus is always for you. And in a moment, normally what we do is we, as we sing, we take and eat and drink um, on your own. Um, in a moment, as we do that, as you eat, as you drink, and as you're, even, as you're singing, just know, Jesus, for us. Even have that kind of refrain in the back of your head. Jesus, for us, for me. Whatever that might look like in your life, and that's gonna be different for each one of us. In all the difficult parts, Jesus is for you there. In all the easy parts, Jesus is for you there too. In all the parts where you don't even really kind of know yet, and you maybe have uh, like the gaps in your life, Jesus is for you there. Let me pray. God, as we bring our lives to you, um, all of ourselves to you, especially the parts that we want, really, if we're honest, we want to hide them from you, and we want to keep our doubts because it keeps things easier. It stops us from having to change. Jesus, we pray through your Holy Spirit that you wouldn't uh, let our doubts get in the way of your glory, your unique, one-of-a-kind glory. Jesus, we pray that as, even just today, as we worship just for today, and let tomorrow and the rest of the week be another thing.